morning and welcome. If you are visiting with us this morning and you have children, I want to let you know about our children's classes downstairs. We have nursery care for those who are two years old and younger. We have a group called Levittown Baptist Littles that is for three and four-year-olds. And then we have a group that is for those who are in fourth grade and down to five years old. So if you have children that are in that age range and you would like them to join those services, you can take them right down the stairs behind us and the ushers there will help you find where to go. If this is your first time there, please escort your children as we'll take down your information to contact you in case of any kind of an emergency. With that being said, let's now turn our attention to the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 23, beginning at verse 11. As you turn there, I'm going to share with you a few events from my life, and your job is to see if you can find the connection between these events. There is a single through line that connects all five of them. In December 10th, 2008, Ashley Bernard picked me up at the Portland airport as a favor to a friend. In February 2022, uh, 22nd rather, of 20, uh, 2009, I preached my very first sermon on a Sunday morning that was at a church containing three adults, four children, and nine pigs in the village of Tranquility in Jamaica. Uh, October 10th, 2009, Ashley Bernard became Ashley Bunch on the day that we said, I do. March 2018, have it removed. April 8th, 2023, yesterday, I took a nap for one hour. What is the through line that connects all of these events? Ponder that as we continue forward. Today, as we examine the book of Acts, we are going to look at a large portion of chapter 23. And the reason that we are covering this part of the chapter this week is because we covered the first 11 verses last Sunday. Here at Levittown Baptist Church, we preach through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. This style of preaching that we employ is called exegesis or exegetical preaching, which is just a fancy way of saying that we are preaching the main point of the book. Whatever is being said up here is supposed to be derived from what the Lord has said in here. In order to provide context of what we are going to study this morning, allow me to remind you where we left off. Paul, the apostle, had traveled to Jerusalem to minister to the believers during the Feast of Pentecost. This would serve as the conclusion of his third and final missionary journey. However, Paul was not the only person that traveled to Jerusalem for that particular celebration. This was one of the high and holy feast and festival weeks, so this was an occasion for many Jews from around the empire to travel there. And there happened to be a large contingency of Jews that had rejected the gospel in Ephesus who also traveled to Jerusalem. In particular, this particular group of Jewish community, they hated the gospel and had publicly opposed the ministry of Paul in Ephesus for the past two years. And their hatred continued to boil over and came to a point of explosion in Jerusalem. When Paul entered the temple, this group of foreign Jews began to mob him and began to falsely accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple. In an effort to save Paul's life, a Roman citizen, a Roman soldier, saw him and pulled him out of the temple courts and into the Roman barracks. At this stage, Paul has been in captivity now for over 24 hours. When we begin our text, 
Paul has now been in their custody for over a full day. And the Romans don't know what to do with him. All they know is that Paul is a Roman citizen, and therefore he has rights. And they know that this city is about to have a riot because they are opposed to Paul and what he has taught. And their job as Roman soldiers is to keep the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. That is their job. And they have no idea what to do. And now what I would like to do is ask you to follow along in your own copy of the Scriptures as I read to you starting in Acts chapter 23, verse 12. This that I am about to read is the Holy Scripture that speaks with the same authority as if Jesus Christ was standing here and speaking these words to you today. This is God's Word. Verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor to drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. 
and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let us pray that God would bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Our dear God and Father in heaven, we do thank you for this inspired word. We pray, Lord, that today we would be fully aware that you are not only the communicator of history, that you are verbalizing to us actual events, but Lord, I ask that you would also make this text come alive in our hearts so that we might trust you and love you and live for you. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ is alive, and because he lives, we can face today. And because he lives, we can live for him. We pray, Lord, that this text would inflame our hearts to do just that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The way that we are going to approach this rather lengthy passage is to examine the actions of some of the individual characters that we find within it, so we can get a better idea here of what's going on. The first is actually not a single character, but the entire group of conspirators. As we read, there was a group of 40 unnamed men who had committed themselves to never again eating or drinking until Paul was dead. They bound themselves with an oath that they would not allow any food or drink to enter their bodies until this man Paul had expired. Now, just a word of advice for those who like to make bets. It is a bad idea. It is a bad idea to bind yourself with an oath until something will take place. Paul happened to live for many more years, so if they actually kept these promises, they would all be dead. They did not keep those promises, of course. And notice that these men, these 40 individuals, they did not act alone. They went to the chief priests and the scribes, meaning the Sanhedrin, and they convinced them to take part in their murderous plot. Now that should not be too surprising to you if you know the story of Jesus Christ. For it was this very same body that had conspired together, making friends out of former enemies in order to bring Christ down. And they knew that Paul was heavily guarded. And they knew that the best opportunity that they would have to kill Paul was when he was in transit. So they got the Sanhedrin to act as though they needed another chance for investigation. Call him back down here. Say you need to ask him a few more questions. And then on the road from there to here, we will ambush him and kill him. This happens to be a pretty risky plan. Even though Paul would not be in the barracks, he would still be guarded by Roman soldiers that were wearing armor and wielding weapons. Now, according to scholars, the very smallest unit of soldiers that would have been utilized to transfer prisoners like Paul would have been 10 men. This is probably why the, what the uh, conspirators were anticipating, 10 soldiers. This was their expectation, that they would have the element of surprise, and that four to one ratio would make it possible for these untrained guerrilla warriors to go after these trained fighting soldiers. My point being, It's likely that these 40 men were expecting that some of them at least would die in the process of killing Paul. Even worse than committing themselves to never eating or drinking again, they were ready to commit an act of war. Crossing swords with the Romans was no small matter, and it appears as though these 40 men were literally willing to die and maybe enter their entire Judean province into war with the Roman Empire over this one man and his message. The question must be asked, why were these men so obsessed with killing Paul? Well, let me provide you with three reasons. First, all the way back up in verse 6, when Paul was on trial before the Sanhedrin, Paul said, it is with respect to the hope 
and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. In the next chapter, when Paul is on trial before Felix, the governor, Paul will say these exact same words. Happy Easter, Jesus is risen. It is in respect to the resurrection that he was on trial. The risen Christ was central to the ministry of Paul and all of the apostles. There is no gospel message without the teaching that Jesus not only died for our sins, but he was also raised on the third day, and that he lives today and forever to be the Savior of all who would believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the most condensed version of the gospel in the entire Bible, and it must include the death, burial, and the resurrection of the Savior Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 verse 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus is able to rule and reign without end because death can never again touch him. Jesus describes himself this way in Revelation chapter 1 verses 17 and 18. He says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. As we learned a few weeks ago, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, meaning they didn't believe in life after death. But it is accurate to say that none of the Sanhedrin were willing to accept that Jesus was alive and ruling and reigning as king. The Jews from Ephesus were likewise committed to denying the risen Christ. Ever since Jesus walked out of that tomb, there have been conspiracies and explanations that have been provided by those who reject the resurrection. The soldiers were told to spread propaganda that the disciples had come and they had stolen away the body. Today, if you go home and decide to turn on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, what you will likely find is a number of programs that are going to give you so-called rational explanation as to why the, temp the tomb was empty. But notice that in the book of Acts, in the actual historical record, there is never a single time in the entire book of Acts when anyone in Jerusalem ever denies that Jesus was raised. Whether it is Peter or Stephen or James or Paul who were proclaiming that Jesus was alive, none of the Jewish leaders ever say anything against those claims. They never deny that Jesus had actually been raised from the dead. They just want nothing to do with his authority. The Jewish leaders have only one goal in mind, bury the story. Why? Because they knew if people realized Jesus was alive, it would prove all of his claims to be true. The second reason that they were so intent on killing Paul was that it robbed them of their authority. Paul was teaching the message of the gospel, which necessarily included that the law and the prophets were fulfilled by Jesus. There was no more need for ceremonial cleansing. Why? Jesus makes us clean. There was no more need for sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus was the true atoning sacrifice. There was no more need for feasts or festivals or new moon celebrations or Sabbaths. Why? Because as Colossians 2 teaches us, those things were shadows of what was to come, the substance of which is Christ. 
Jesus abolished the food laws. Jesus tore down the dividing wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus came to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. In short, if this message was accepted, then the Jewish leaders would lose their position of authority, and they would no longer be able to put words in God's mouth. They would no longer be able to use religious practices created by God to enrich themselves. And for that reason, they had to put a stop to the gospel message by putting a stop to the gospel messenger. And the third reason that they wanted to kill Paul was simply this, because they were not children of God. If you remember, Paul himself was just like these men. He, described him, he is described in the book of Acts, chapter 8, as breathing out murderous threats against the people of God. He was an enemy of the cross. Well, what changed? Jesus sought Paul out, Jesus called him to salvation, and Jesus upended his entire life, turning everything upside down. If you are a Christian, you need to know something. You need to know that you are going to have enemies. Maybe you're not used to having enemies. Maybe you're the kind of person that gets along with just about everyone. But you need to know that when you come to Christ, everyone who makes themselves an enemy of God will see you as an enemy as well. When you become a Christian, you might find that many of your friends want nothing to do with you. They don't like your new values. They don't want to hear about the things that you now treasure. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus promised that this is how unbelievers would respond to those who follow Christ. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. In other words, it's nothing about you. It's not you. It's me, Jesus says. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because you belong to me, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's no surprise that Paul is being treated this way. It's no surprise that even though everything we have seen about this man is gushing with kindness and overflowing with mercy and being friendly and passionately winsome towards these people that he views as his brothers in biological terms. And he says to them, I want you to know this good news. He goes so far in Romans chapter 9 as to say, if he could give up his own salvation for the sake of his brothers, he would do so so that they might be saved. He has done nothing but display love and kindness, yet they respond in hatred, so much so that they are willing to throw their entire nation away so that this man's message might die. The conspirators were committed to killing Paul, but they were thwarted by a very surprising character. He will be the next point of our focus in the sermon. Our next few minutes, we will focus in on the nephew of Paul. Now, why do I say that this is a surprise character? Maybe you've heard of Chekhov's gun, the idea that you're supposed to never have somebody randomly pull out a weapon in a movie unless it has already been displayed that that person is carrying a weapon in a previous scene. You can't just throw a random incident into the middle of the story, but right here in the middle of Acts, we find a new character that has never been displayed anywhere else, and we will never see him again. He's a surprise character because... Up to this point, we have no idea about any of Paul's relatives. He speaks briefly about the fact that his parents lived in Cilicia, but even the way that he speaks about them indicates that they are likely dead. We don't know about Paul's sister. We don't know about his nephew until we arrive at this portion of the Scripture. 
We do know that Paul was not originally from Jerusalem. He was from Tarsus in Cilicia. So how in the world did this nephew end up here? Well, the short answer is, we literally have no idea. (laughs) Scholars have developed all sorts of theories about this. Uh, They think maybe that Paul was using his time in Jerusalem at this Feast of Pentecost to kind of serve like as a double purpose of being not only a way to care for the Christians in Jerusalem, but also serve as a family reunion. Perhaps they had traveled from Cilicia to be there with him, and they were spending time with him before he was arrested. And perhaps he was actually living, or his sister was actually living in that city. Perhaps she had gone there when Paul went to study under Gamaliel and had married somebody among the elite families of the city. Ultimately, we don't know, and ultimately it doesn't actually matter that much. The Lord doesn't provide us with the details because it's not necessary But the important point is that Paul's nephew just so happened to overhear about the plot and he rushed to tell Paul all about it. And then Paul was able to turn around and run the information up the chain so the soldiers would take steps to protect him. But there is something that I find very interesting about this nephew. You'll notice that in verse 17, 18, and 22, the nephew is referred to as young man. The Greek word here is actually the word for youth. And this is not a very specific word in Greek. It can range from anyone who is a young child to somebody who is in their upper 20s. So it's not a very helpful word in terms of exact description. However, there is a notable detail that gives us the indication that this was probably not somebody in his 20s. Look again at verse 19. It says, The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Now, I don't know about you, but when I have spoken to anybody, like a police officer, they have never grabbed me by the hand and pulled me aside and said, hey, let's talk for a minute. Do you need to talk to me about something? If that has ever happened to me, it was when I was young enough that I can't remember it. It's when I was a child. This is not the way that authority figures act towards adults. It is likely that this young man was under the age of 12, maybe well younger. And it's interesting to me that there are no specifics given about this young man. There is no name provided. There is no age provided. And the wording used is seemingly intentionally vague. Why would Luke do that? This very same author who is so strict about being clear about every last detail. Well, likely, he doesn't say much because this young man was probably still alive, and probably this group of people was still murderously enraged against him for overthrowing and thwarting their plot. So likely, the lack of description is used here as a way to veil his identity from those who would want to harm him. Now, there are many things that we do not know about this young man. We don't know his age. We don't know his name. We don't know if his mother was a Christian. We don't even know if he was a Christian. Maybe he's just trying to help, help out his favorite uncle. I could just see Paul as being one of those guys that as a young man, I would love to have as an uncle. I'd talk to him about everything. I want to know all of this stuff. You seem to be the smartest person in the world, Paul. Tell me everything you know. But what we do know about this young man is that he had extreme courage to do the right thing. Before moving on to our next character, let me just make two simple observations. First, I want to speak about young people in general. And to parents, I want to say we need to be raising our children to operate out of a strong and clear moral ethic. We should be training them to have courage to do what is right, even if it is costly. Think about this. If Paul's nephew had been caught, these conspirators who were committed to starving themselves, 
in, before they killed Paul? These conspirators who were willing to die to kill Paul, do you think they would bat an eye at killing this young man? We must train up our children in the way that they should go, so much so that they are able to stand firm and to do what is necessary in order to do what is right. Young people, I want to speak to you, those who particularly who are in the youth group age. I want to speak to you and tell you that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you do not need to wait until you are an adult to do great things for the Lord. In fact, I encourage you, you must not wait until you are an adult to do great things for the Lord. You are to be a light for Christ in your schools, in your house, wherever you are. You are to be a light for Jesus Christ and to serve him. You are not the church of tomorrow. You are the church today. So I encourage you, young people, stand firm, do what is right, live for the Lord, be faithful. You can do great things for him now. The second thing that I want us to notice here is that we are to be strong and courageous. Believer, our courage is not forged through strength. It is not forged through training or through superiority. We do not have courage to face our fear of culture because we are smarter than them or more well-educated than them. We do not face our fear in sharing the gospel because we are more clever or more, more well-spoken than those to whom we are evangelizing. We do not face our fear of death through reason or through distraction. Believers, we are able to be fearless because we have God with us. Psalm 34 verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Brothers and sisters, we can take courage to do what is right for the Lord, because he stands for us. Let's turn now our focus to the next character. We're going to focus in on Felix next Sunday, so we're not going to focus on him at all today. For now, I want to look at this Roman tribune. Notice that the tribune responded very honorably in the situation. He took the threat seriously. He wrote a letter to his superior. He rushed to Paul that very, rushed Paul that very day to Felix, and he sent 470 soldiers to escort one seemingly insignificant man. Paul became the center of focus of the entire Roman military in the Judean province that day. There was no way that a band of 40 poorly trained, poorly prepared men were going to jump Paul with this small army escorting him. Did you notice that in verse 24 it says that they prepared mounts for Paul? Two at least, mounts, plural, for Paul? In other words, this indicates that they were focused on moving him so quickly that they had a spare horse for him to ride when he has got tired. In other words, they didn't march at a regular pace. They rushed Paul to get out of danger by riding hard the entire 80-mile trip to Caesarea. The main thing that I want you to see from this tribune is that he did everything possible to ensure that Paul had a fair trial. In verse 30, the closing line of his letter to Felix reads, And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. In other words, so that he might have a fair trial. We're not actually going to spend almost any more time here with the Tribune today, other than to note that it is a very shameful thing that the people who claim to know and love and worship God are acting far more wickedly than this Roman pagan who did not know or love the God of the Bible. There's one more character that we need to examine today. Do you know who it is? Somebody that is in the text, but is hidden in some ways. When we started this sermon, I listed five events from my life, and I asked you to find the common thread that was through each one of them. 
If you said, well, these were all travels, uh, you would be wrong. Some of those took place here. If you said they all involved first meetings, you would be wrong. I did not meet anyone while taking a nap. If you said that they were all significant moments, you would be wrong. If you said that these were the only dates that I could remember, you'd be pretty close. (laughs) I don't remember dates that well. But you would still be wrong. There are a f- I do remember some of my kids' birthdays most of the time, all right? That's a joke. If you said that the thing that combines all of these things together and unifies them is that I was there, that I was present for all of them, you would be right, but that's not what I'm looking for. The thing that binds all of them together is that the Lord was with me during each one. Whether I was aware of it or not, whether I was even awake or not, whether it was viewed to me as a big deal or not, whether I was happy or not, whether it seemed spiritual at the time or not, Jesus was there. Now, as I read the text today, did you notice that there is not a single mention of God in the text? It does not reference the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit doing anything. But the fact of the matter is, God was certainly there. And we are going to spend the remainder of our time reading between the lines this morning, considering how we can know with certainty that God was with Paul during this perilous time. Let's begin by considering the providential plan of the Father. Providence is simply a way of speaking about how God has planned and orchestrated everything that comes to pass. There are no accidents. Luck and fortune and destiny and fate and coincidence, those are all just terms and Concepts that are foreign to the scripture and they are abject denials of the sovereignty of God over his creation. Consider the intricate pieces that had to fall into place in order for these events to play out. First, going a little farther back, Paul had to have been born into a family of Roman citizens. He had to have that from birth. He had to also have a sister who survived to adulthood, which was actually unusual for many children to survive into adulthood. Paul's sister had to have a son, and Paul's nephew had to be in Jerusalem at this time. And Paul had to be seen by the Roman tribune when he was being attacked by the Jews in the temple. And Paul had to be arrested by a man of integrity. And, Paul had to be, and Paul's nephew had to be in the exact right place at the exact right time in order to overhear a plan to kill his uncle. Think about that for a moment. These people were conspiring to kill someone. It's not like they were shouting it from the rooftops. This was a secret, yet this young man just so happened to be in the right place to overhear their plans. And Paul's nephew had to be granted entrance into the Roman barracks. Not many young men or children walk up to a Roman soldier's garrison battalion building, knock on the door, and say, Hey guys, can I come in for a minute? You've got my uncle in there. I need to give him a message. Normally, that's not how things worked. But he was given entrance. That was no small feat for someone who was not a soldier to pull off. And then the Roman tribune had to believe the word of this underage boy and then take extreme action to ward off the would-be assassins. Before the universe was even formed, God planned the smallest detail of how Paul's life would be preserved. God planned the day that I met my wife. He planned the nap that I took yesterday. Sometimes when life is easy, we feel like we are within the will of God, that we are within his plan. We think that we can see his plan and we acknowledge his providential work in our lives and we think, yes, I can see it. That's what God is doing. But sometimes life is difficult, and sometimes God seems far away, and sometimes the circumstances of our lives seem far beyond our control, and they are filled with pain or frustration or suffering. 
Do you not know that God planned all of your days and that every one of them he has designed to be good? The days that you see as good and the days that you see as bad? In his book called Providence, John Piper writes, God is sovereign over suffering, which means it is not meaningless. It is not wrath. It is not ultimately destructive. It is not wanton or heedless. It is purposeful. It is measured. It is wise and loving. Another way to explain this is that the love of the Father is always with you. His affection has always radically and dramatically been for His children. His work of planning out everything in your life was done in love. Dear brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you can truly believe that God has ordained every step that you take. You can trust that God the Father has providentially ordered the events of your life, but not just the comfortable ones, also the uncomfortable, for your good and for His glory. It's only a God like this that can promise that He works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. God the Father was with him in love that day. The love of the Father is with you when you feel it. And the love of the Father is with you when you don't. But consider also that Jesus, the Son of God, is with you. And he was with Paul. The last words that Jesus declared to his disciples before ascending to the Father were, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Back up in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, Luke informs us of what happened with Paul the first night that he was arrested and detained by the Romans. It said, the following night, the Lord stood by him. In that case, Jesus literally spoke to Paul and gave him a message that he would also have to go and suffer in Rome. But in our passage today, that never once mentions the name of Jesus, the Lord was still with Paul. I am with you always, Jesus said. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, he is with you always. One of the precious doctrines of the Christian faith is called union with Christ. If you have been saved, you have been inseparably joined to Jesus. The way that you find this most clearly in the New Testament is all of the times you find that little phrase that you read over too quickly that says, in Christ. Paul describes the Christian experience as Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. In his book, One with Christ, Marcus Peter Johnson summarizes this idea of union with this collection of statements from various New Testament texts. He says, To experience fellowship with the Son is to be made alive in Christ, justified in Christ, sanctified in Christ, seated in the heavenly realms in Christ, built up into Christ, given fullness in Christ. Those joined to Christ are members of Christ, crucified with Christ, included in Christ, baptized into Christ, and the body of Christ. They figuratively eat and drink Christ. They are one with Christ. Christ dwells in them, and they dwell in Him, and they can do nothing apart from Him. Notice these are present tense. He is not with you in the future alone. He has not just been with you in the past Jesus is able to be forever in union with us, and he is able to do so because he was willing to stand alone for us. Consider Christ. Unlike Paul, who had the comfort of the Lord during his suffering, Jesus stood alone before the Sanhedrin and Pilate and Herod and Annas. At the cross, the Father turned his face away as he poured out his own wrath on his Son. The full, unvented fury of his anger was poured out on Christ against sin that Jesus bore on himself. 
Jesus suffered alone so that we might never again be alone. Hudson Taylor, one of the great missionaries of the Christian faith, was the founder of the China Inland Mission. He had an incredible life, ministry filled with ups and downs. But in his writings, he notes that he went through two very specific challenging trials that surpassed all of the rest in his life. The first of those trials happened early in his ministry, when he had only been a Christian for roughly five years. His wife had already had two children die during childbirth, and then his son Samuel died in January of uh, 1870. In July, his wife Maria gave birth to a son named Noel, who died two weeks later. And then just two weeks later than that, July 23rd, his own wife Maria died of cholera. It was a very low point in his life. Thirty years later, after decades of faithful ministry and seeing many people in China come to faith in Christ, tragedy of a very different kind struck. There was an uprising in China called the Boxer Rebellion. Christians and churches were targeted and wiped out all across the country. Hudson Taylor's group of missionaries suffered major losses. Fifty-eight adults were killed and 21 children were savagely slaughtered by the enemies of Christ. During both of these seasons of Hudson Taylor's life, he writes that there was just one thing that gave him strength to carry on. In his books, he writes that it was only the knowledge of the presence of Christ in his life that allowed him to stand. When asked about how he processed his suffering, he he replied, How few of the Lord's people recognize the truth that Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He went on to explain that there is a way to prepare your heart for this kind of trial. He said, The secret of faith that is ready for emergencies is the quiet, practical dependence upon God day by day, which makes him real to the believing heart. He explained that this was the prayer he would pray. This is the hymn that he would sing that would remind him of the presence of God in his life. He would pray, Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality, more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen, more dear, more intimately nigh than e'en the sweetest earthly tie. In other words, let me see you as my closest friend. Let me see you as the most significant object and most important thing in my life. Be a bright reality to me even in the mundane days of my existence. Do you recognize the presence of Christ in your life? Do you long for it, or do you only think of Jesus when you realize you need something from him? If you are a Christian, you are called to live your entire existence, quorum Deo, before the face of God. And that looks like living with an ever-increasing delight in the dependence upon the active presence of Jesus, who is with you always, even to the end of the age. But let's not forget the Holy Spirit. There are, also, there are so many aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we could examine, the power of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the encouragement of the Spirit. We could see His saving work or His sanctifying work or His equipping work or purifying work or sealing work or empowering work. We could see how the Spirit transforms our minds, our hearts, our wills, our actions. But for simplicity's sake, the one thing I want you to notice today is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says it beautifully. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. If you are a Christian, do you understand what that means? 
I think if we meditated upon that for the rest of our lives, we would still be overwhelmed with a lack of understanding and a mind blown at the fact that the Holy Spirit has not said, set up a building for me where you will go and worship me. He says, I am going to be with you, in you, within you. I am going to take up residency there. I am going to be wherever you are so that wherever you are, you can worship me. And so that wherever you are, I will be with you. To tie it all together, this is Resurrection Sunday. Romans 8.11 tells us, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He is never far from you. Where was God when Paul was being threatened by the mob of enemies? The Father's love was set on him. And Paul shared in unbreakable union with Christ. And Paul was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Even though his name is not written on the page, he certainly is in the margins. He certainly was in the presence of Paul. This past Thursday, uh, Sybil Wolford, Rocky's mother, went home to be with the Lord. Almost exactly 24 hours prior to the minute that she took her last breath, I was sitting next to her, reading the Bible to her and praying with her and reminding her of the promises of God. Because Jesus is alive and because she had trusted in him for salvation, I was able to look at her in her suffering and encourage her and tell her, soon you will be at home with the Lord. Soon your faith will be sight. And I reminded her of the words of Jesus in John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. And those are good promises. It is good to be reminded of the eternal promises of heaven. But... The promise of being with the Lord is not just future. It is present. He is present. And therefore, while sitting next to Sybil, I was able to proclaim the good news to her that the Lord was with her even in that moment. He had made his home with her. She was not walking through that last battle alone. She was not wading through those waves of death alone. The Lord never calls any of his children to do anything alone. He is with you. Where is God when life hurts? Where is God when you feel alone? Where is God when you suffer? If you have believed the gospel, if you are born again, if you are a child of God, then the promise stands for you. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we do thank you that you are present with your people, that you are active in the lives of your people, that you never abandon your people, that you never left Paul alone. Lord, I pray that you would never leave us alone. I thank you that you have given us that promise. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone in this room who has not yet been united to Christ through salvation, I pray, Lord, that they would see the good news, the promise of forgiveness of sin. I pray that they would see that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners and they would believe and be saved. Lord, I thank you that you have raised your son, Jesus Christ, and that he lives today to be the Savior of all who would believe. Thank you for every heart in this room that declares Jesus as Lord. And Lord, I pray that everyone who does not will bow their heart today to Jesus Christ, the King and ruler of all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.